American Road Trip Talk begins after this message. You know his vision of America, but do you know his name? One of the most highly respected artists of America's Great Depression era, John Stuart Curry, defined the country's perceptions of the American Midwest. His painting, Tornado Over Kansas, is still one of the most iconic images in U.S. pop culture today. For the first time in a quarter century, Curry's masterworks will be exhibited under one roof. Visit the Muskegon Museum of Art in Michigan this summer to see John Stuart Curry Weathering the Storm, an exhibition of life, art, and the American Midwest. To learn more, visit muskeganartmuseum.org forward slash curry. The horizon is wide and the highway is calling. That means it's time for another episode of American Road Trip Talk. I'm your host, Gary Mance, with a welcome and an invitation to travel the byways and back roads of yesteryear, searching for America in every incomparable mile. Welcome once again, ladies and gentlemen. Glad to have you along for the ride. Glad to be working alongside Nathan Miller, our producer. This is American Road Trip Talk. We'll be back with the interview right after this. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days, and I want to bring attention to a life-saving product called Alert Drops. Drowsy driving is one of the most catastrophic problems in America, and Alert Drops will stop it. What is Alert Drops? Alert Drops is a simple spray on the tongue made out of citric acid, sour lemon, and water. A simple spray on the tongue, nothing in your system, and you're naturally awake, naturally alert. Go to alertjobs.com. Very important. Go to alertjobs.com and stay safe. Wherever you go, Alternative Talk 1150 is here for you. Welcome back to American Road Trip Talk. Before we begin, American Road Magazine would like to thank the following. Ranker.com, enjoytravellife.com, and travelerspress.com for honoring us with excellent rating. On their recent lists of outstanding travel magazines, American Road was listed in the top 25 travel magazines in 2024 at number 11 by Ranker, listed by Travelers Press in the top 25 travel magazines of 2024 at number 16, one of only three in that group that are dedicated to travel in the USA. And Enjoy Travel Life rated American Road as number one in the best specialty magazines for travelers 2024 category. To say the least, we are grateful. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, on February 9, 1964, the Beatles made their first appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show. And on that electrifying night, Beatlemania swept across America. Jeffrey Mark is our guest for a discussion of the places where the Fab Four performed, stayed, and visited during their initial trip to the USA. Which locations still can be seen today? We're going to find out that and a whole lot more as we get together with Jeffrey Mark. He's a fan favorite on our show. We're always glad to have Jeffrey join us. He has been called a walking encyclopedia of show business history. Jeffrey has hosted radio series, written comedy, and now writes and produces documentaries and reality shows for cable TV. He also has authored three best-selling books devoted to Lucille Ball, Ella Fitzgerald, and Ethel Merman. Jeffrey Mark, welcome once again, my friend. I always get so excited to hear what that guy is going to say, because you make him sound so wonderful. 
But well, he is. Thank you so much. Hello, everybody. Happy to be with you. As this is broadcast, it was 60 years ago tonight that the Beatles made their first appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show. And man, as far they were already famous. But when they came to America, as a friend of mine once put it, their rocket was lit. Tell us about that, Jeffrey. Well, and I'm related to the man who lit the match. Really? Um, yes. Uh, we had to watch the Ed Sullivan show that night. I remember it very distinctly because uh, there was a man named Sid Bernstein who produced their first several concerts in this country. Uh, they didn't travel here to see Ed Sullivan. They traveled here because they were booked. And Sid Bernstein booked them. And Sid Bernstein is my cousin. So what was going on at that time impacted my family. And, and uh, so it wasn't just uh, another one of the people watching the Ed Sullivan show. It was to look at what my cousin had told my grandmother. Keep your eyes on this. You're going to see something you've never seen before. And... Uh, so I, I was, you know, an infinitesimal part of Beatlemania before there was Beatlemania. Uh, and it was very uh, unusual in my home because when Sid came to visit, I was not allowed to even mention the Beatles' name. Now, why a, would that be? My grandmother, Sid and my grandmother were first cousins. That's how he's my cousin. Um... She felt that Sid was getting so much pressure from everyone in the world for tickets to go see them, for interviews to talk with them, for uh, autographs, that she felt when he came to our home, he was coming for a good Jewish dinner and to get away from it all, not to plunge himself into the middle of it all. So I was just told under no, I didn't get to talk to Steve, Sid about the Beatles till I was a grown man and could do whatever the hell I wanted at that point. <laughs> um, but but uh, it was a very intense time for Sid, for Ed Sullivan, and for the four gentlemen because perhaps at the height of Frank Sinatra's fame when he was very, very young and girls were swooning over him, We'd never seen anything like this before. This this kind of, especially females, just swooning and fainting and clawing to get at them and, you know, staying outside their hotels for 24 hours, hoping to get a piece of their pillowcase that they slept on. Uh, it, it was almost as if the women of America were hypnotized. It was such an electrifying event. And... What came after is something that I still try to explain to myself as well as to those who were not yet born when all of this was going on. Beatlemania seems to have been not only the synergy of four young men from Liverpool, but also they came along at a time, not just in pop culture history, it seems to me, Jeffrey, yes. but world history. This is February 9, 1964, we're talking about. President John F. Kennedy was assassinated on November 22nd, 1963. And that's not a large gap of time. Oh, no, not at all. These, 
between these momentous, seemingly unrelated events. But I privately have maintained, and now I'm saying it publicly, that the world needed the kind of energy that the Beatles brought. Because if you were alive at the time that JFK was assassinated, you knew what it was like for much of the world and certainly all of America to be to be cast deep into depression and despair. And the I Beatles, think, like yeah. magic, brought us out of it. You're being very wise, Gary. Because if you look back through even 20th century history, every time there's been uh, a world war, war of any kind, really, a trauma in our country. Look what was happening in the arts right at the same time. Uh, world War One and the influenza epidemic that killed millions of people. And all of a sudden, there's bootlegging and the Charleston and whoop-de-doo and let's forget about it. Uh, I, I think the Beatles, indeed, right place, right time, young, good-looking, talented boys because that's how they came across, very boyish. And the world was bleeding emotionally because of what had happened. And there they were as a tonic, just like the disco era in the 70s. Uh, we'd gone through all these assassinations and Vietnam War. And it was just like the 20s with the Charleston and the speakeasies. Uh, America said, no, no, I've had enough. Give me a beat. Let me dance. Get out of my way. So I think the Beatles, right time, right place, the Ed Sullivan show was the right place to feature them because the Beatles were not only being introduced to young people and teenage girls, but to their parents and grandparents. So the whole world watched Ed Sullivan multi-generationally. And there they were at a time when we needed something to take our minds off of the horror. Now, they happened to be spectacularly talented people and who worked very hard, by the way. That first year in 64, those four men were exhausted because just to get to the venues, the, like the first two big shows they did at the Washington Coliseum in D.C. and Shea Stadium in New York, uh, it was three hours to get to the venue because of the fans mobbing them and then getting out afterwards safely. There were, there were times that their their own personal safety was unclear because of how the fans were reacting. Uh, the Washington Coliseum no longer exists. So you, you can't go visit that, unfortunately. And the original Shea Stadium doesn't exist. You can't go visit that, unfortunately. But where Ed Sullivan played was a theater on Broadway uh, in, the, in the, if anyone knows Manhattan, in the, in the 50s, meaning the streets of Manhattan climb as you go north, the, the, the teens, the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, up to the hundreds and somethings. So this is the 50s, you know, West 50s something street. And it, there were, all over New York at that time, unused ex-vaudeville theaters. And for those of you who are too young to know what vaudeville was, it was a live variety show with, with uh, puppetry and singers and dancers and comedians and sketches and jugglers and dog acts. And it was very popular in this country. 
until radio and talking pictures kind of shoved it out of the way. So New York had a lot of these theaters. CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System, either bought or rented a lot of these theaters and retrofitted them into television studios so that uh, at the time in 1964, when the Fab Four came here, there were still a lot of broadcasting coming out of New York. Uh, live variety shows, the news, all of the soap operas, all of the soap operas were all coming out of New York. And they rented these theaters for that purpose. And uh, the Ed Sullivan show from 1948 on was in one of these theaters. Eventually it landed in one theater. And eventually, I believe it was 1967, CBS renamed it the Ed Sullivan Theater. It is still called the Ed Sullivan Theater. And one can still walk down Broadway and walk where the Beatles walked. And there's a little, a little coffee shop there that was there all those years ago. And the kids probably got coffee from there. And through the years, like David Letterman came from there. Uh, Stephen Colbert show now comes from there. So the, the ghosts of the energy of the Beatles just walk the halls there. And one can still experience that. And thank goodness... Thank you for that, Jeffrey. Yes, the Ed Sullivan Theater. Now, during that first visit to the USA, did the Beatles not also play at Carnegie Hall? Um, they did not do a concert at Carnegie Hall. They appeared and left. Oh, so they, really? The whole evening was not the Beatles. Um, Carnegie Hall... In 1964, about the only things you saw at Carnegie Hall at that moment in history, uh, classical music played, uh, classical singers from the opera were there. Um, they, they had allowed jazz at Carnegie Hall since the very late 30s. So Ella Fitzgerald and Count Basie played Carnegie Hall. Uh, and then there's a smaller venue in the building for up-and-coming people in those venues uh, where they, they couldn't attract. Carnegie Hall is a lot of people. Uh, so there's a smaller room, but I've sung that, for instance, that, that for those of us who can't fill that huge space, smaller space. But uh, the, the Beatles, the very, you know, we're talking about the first visit. Right. It was not very long. Because they were booked in Europe. They were booked in England. They, they had, you know, already broken through in the United Kingdom. And they had bookings they had to fill. They were already already very well known in Germany. In fact, Germany is really where the Beatles found their identity in Hamburg and uh, learned how to please an audience. Because the Germans enjoyed their music the Beatles just kind of you know, stood there and performed. And they would yell out from the, from the audience, mach show, mach show. <laughs> Meaning, you know, do something. Don't just stand there and sing. Make a show. And, and that's when the matching costumes and uh, moving their hair, head back and forth so their, their hair kind of fluffed in the wind as they performed, uh, interacting with each other, on the stage, 
you know, uh, John to Ring to George, George to Paul. Uh, poor Ringo was always because he was back behind them. Uh, but that's where they learned. So Germany was big for them, and uh, of course, all of the United Kingdom because they were homeboys from Liverpool. So the the first visit. Now there was more than one visit in 1964. Yes. So there are other things they did a little bit later, and then eventually, Bob Eubanks, who I saw back in December, uh, still alive. It's amazing. Uh, he's he's still walking around us because it's been a long time. It yes. was Bob Eubanks who took over from Sid and booked them on the West Coast. And uh, you know at the Hollywood Bowl and things like that. That, but that was later, later in the year and into 1965. They were doing so much; it's almost hard to follow all they were doing because in '64 they made a film. They recorded I don't know how many albums that year, just getting stuff in the can, in the can, in the can, and then traveling all over the world. Uh, I believe the original place that they played in Hamburg is still there and one can visit it. The club where they were found in London, the cave is still there and one can go visit. So one, if one has some money, one can travel to Europe and kind of walk where they walked. Uh, you can almost choose the sequence so that you you go from the first place to the second place. And then you fly to New York and you go to the Ed Sullivan Theater. And, and of course, you can visit the Hollywood Bowl anytime. And uh, I, I'm I'm a big believer in energy. And I think their energy is still there. You can almost palpably feel it. Uh, certainly when I was last in the Ed Sullivan Theater, uh, when David Letterman was there, uh, you could feel it. You could, you could felt the energy of all the incredible people who had performed there. And the Beatles are four of them. That's very well said. When it comes to hotels, am I correct in saying that when they first arrived, that the Beatles stayed at the Plaza Hotel? Yes, but not for long. <laughs> <laughs> Do they? Are these places, and what I would really love to know, what our listeners, our traveling listeners would love to know, are there places where the Beatles stayed where they can find plaques, for example, to commemorate their stay. The fact, yes, the Beatles were here. The Beatles slept here. The Plaza Hotel is now part hotel, part condominiums. But there is a plaque, and Plaza Hotel is still there on Central Park West. They stayed at the Pennsylvania Hotel down in Herald Square. That hotel still exists. Uh... I think the name has changed, but the building is still there. Just about everywhere the Beatles stayed in 1964 is there. It's it's just that Sid had to move them because this this may sound like hyperbole, but they literally became prisoners in their hotel suites mm-hmm. because they couldn't even go down to the lobby to buy a pack of cigarettes or go to the coffee shop or the restaurant or the lobby and enjoy themselves, they'd be mobbed. And I say, and I mean mobbed. I mean where people were so out of control, you could see them getting hurt or worse. 
So Sid kept having to move them. So the hotels you know about are the ones he wanted you to know about. And then there are places they stayed and and they're all still there uh, where they were hiding because they he thought if they were in less conspicuous places or places like the Sherry Netherland, which had tremendous security, that's the hotel people went to for privacy. Mm. Uh, the Waldorf Astoria, the plaza, you didn't get privacy there because it was very well known and those hotels had huge ballrooms and conventions and weddings and performers also using the ballrooms to perform in. So so that Sid had to find places that were more like expensive boutique hotels. And they he got they got him suites. So they'd have a sitting room and then bedrooms, which they had to share because there aren't very many four-bedroom suites available even back then in New York City. So yes, a good fan can can almost take a walking trip through New York if that's your destination. Visit their hotels. Um, touch touch the front desk that they touched, uh, eat in some of the restaurants they ate in before they couldn't do that any longer, a- and the Ed Sullivan Theater and uh, and Carnegie Hall. Uh, so yeah, for those of you out there who who have been wanting to walk in the path of the Beatles, probably New York City is your best bet. Because allow me to suggest. Thank you for that perfect segue, Jeffrey Bark. I try. Paul McCartney Photographs, 1963-64, Eyes of the Storm, May 3 to August 18, 2024, at the Iris and B. Gerald Cantor Gallery on the fifth floor of the Brooklyn Museum. One of the best museums in the world. Tell us a little bit about that, and what a great place to have this, to be able to go and see Paul photographing what he saw as he was being encountered. And when you think about it, too, he even took a photograph of the photographers photographing him. This was through the eyes of Paul McCartney. And this is a gentleman who, would you figure, for more than 60 years now, unless he's secluded, can't go anywhere without people taking his picture. You just have to get used to it. Look, even at my level, I can't go most places without my my picture being taken. You know, there's thousands of photos of little old me floating around the internet and I'm, you know, a celebrity certainly, but I'm not a superstar the way he is. Uh, the Brooklyn Museum is and has always been one of the finest museums in New York City. Uh, it didn't have competition because in Brooklyn it's the only major museum of its kind. It's laid out beautifully. Even the food in their coffee shop is delicious. And not, and it's not far from the Brooklyn Botanical Walks. So if you go in, in good weather, you can visit the Brooklyn Museum, see Paul's photos, and then go to the Botanical Gardens and sort of chill out and absorb what you just saw of Paul at the Brooklyn Museum. And also in New York, I don't want to leave this episode without talking about having you talk about Strawberry Fields in Central Park. Yes. Uh, Central Park always has been a place where people loved to go. People who have never been to New York have no idea the enormity of Central Park. I mean, it's just this great big 
gaping hole in the middle of Manhattan surrounded by skyscrapers. But the park is enormous. And there is and has been for quite a while now uh, a part of it that has been claimed as strawberry fields in, in uh, tribute to the Beatles. And not, I, I know we're running short on time. And not to end on a sour note, and one of these days we should talk about this again, because I think we have before, but I was one of the witnesses of John Lennon's assassination. And I was there when he was shot and saw it and reacted to it. And uh, like I said, the Beatles and I have crossed paths more than once. And what a place to pay tribute to John Lennon and the Beatles, Strawberry Fields in Central Park, New York. We have two minutes to go, so let me duck this one in. Let's go to the, the left coast, the Capitol Records building in Los Angeles. It's magical. You almost feel the magic when you walk through it. Uh, the Capitol Records building, it wasn't meant to be this way, but it looks like a giant stack of records. For those of you who know what an LP record is, with a giant needle on top playing the records. That wasn't the purpose of the architecture, but just how it ended up looking, especially if you're driving by on the freeway looking at it. But the the halls there where the Beatles recorded, where Frank Sinatra recorded, uh, where Ella Fitzgerald recorded, are probably the best sound studios in this country for recording music. And the Beatles were lucky and fortunate to be there. And I believe it's there available, are... It's available to be visited. It's there. Absolutely. And I believe there's a walk of fame for each Beatle outside Capitol Records, not far from where the Beatles are honored as a group on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Absolutely, sir. Jeffrey Mark, we could go on and on and we'll find other opportunities to pay tribute yeah, to the Beatles. Too, the it's Fab Four. Too short. It's too short. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> <laughs> Jeffrey Mark, my friend, thank you for joining us once again. And please listen in to Jeffrey Mark Plays Ella available wherever you listen to good music. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in to American Road Trip Talk, along with Thomas and Becky Rep, co-founders of American Road Magazine. We remind you to visit our website, AmericanRoadMagazine.com, to preview the current issue. Until next time, dream well and drive safely on the American Road. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days, and I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure.